Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we do episodes on all types of things, theology, uh, missions, ministry, leadership. Uh, But one of the episodes that people really love uh, is these church history episodes that we've done for such a long time now with Pastor Greg Axe of Crest Bible Church. And he's with us again today. Now, the last time we were together, it was actually episode 58. So it was quite a long time ago that we were talking about church history And at at that time, we were talking about the Dark Ages specifically. And so we've kind of been moving through Western history since Christ. And here we are uh, still in the Dark Ages. And today we're going to be speaking specifically about the Crusades and the the impact of the Crusades and what was going on and what was the, the ideologies and the thought behind the Crusades specifically. Now, Pastor Greg Axe is the perfect guy for this conversation because he teaches the church history class here at the Living Faith Bible Institute, and uh, and he has become um, our go-to guy. Now, the thing about the Crusades that's kind of complicated is that they kind of span about a 200-year period. Uh, 1095 to 1291 is, is what a lot of historians say, but in that time, there's so much going on. It's a very complex topic. It's hard to make sense of. And in these next two episodes today, and then the next episode as well, we're going to try to unpack the entire history of the Crusades for you and and simplify it and make it easy. And so with that, I want to welcome Pastor Greg Axe. Always good to be here, sir. Appreciate these opportunities. Man, we, we always have fun, and I always learn so much from having these conversations. So let's start with basically, um, I know we, in the last episode, uh, we talked a lot about the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. We covered a lot of ground there. But one of the topics that you hit on was the birth of Islam yes. and Muhammad and his role. And and he, be, you know, the, the religion Islam becomes a crucial center point for what's happening in terms of the Crusades. It's, it's yes. a, a, an important topic for us mm-hmm. to address. So maybe you can go back and revisit Muhammad, uh, share with us a little bit about who he is, uh, how Islam came into being, and how some of the their religious thought, the, the, the Islamic religious thought, had an impact um, on on what we're about to talk about today. Yeah, very briefly, obviously, because that Islam is a whole oh, yeah. major topic. You know, one of the three major religions of the sure. world. But um, roughly around six, middle of 600, 615, 630, somewhere in there, uh, Muhammad has his visions and dreams and becomes the ruler of this particular area. And then there, there's this wave that goes through. Palestine and North Africa militarily, where they conquer that particular region and area, mm-hmm. come all the way through across North North Africa, up across the Gibraltar, and they get all the way to a town called Tours, France, where the Islamic wave has stopped at that particular point in time. Mm-hmm. So to summarize it very, very briefly, it's a religion that they do to us as Christians a similar thing than we do to the nation of Israel with the Jewish religion is we tell them, yes, your law is awesome and we love it, and but Jesus fulfilled it and he now super Christianity now supersedes mm-hmm. uh, um, um, Jewish religion because Christ went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins, mm-hmm. fulfilled your Old Testament regulations and types. Mm-hmm. 
Islam comes along and does the same thing. They say, yeah, we love Christianity, but now this is an added revelation on top of that, and we supersede what Christianity is because of the time period in which it originated from. Right. So, but it becomes militaristic, and they do that military wave through North Africa, and Palestine conquered that particular area, and then we're stopped there at the Battle of Tours, France in 732, and uh, Charles Martel, the grandfather of... Charlemagne is the military guy that stopped him. Now you got two religions who are dominating the world at that particular point right. in time: Islam, Middle East, and North and, and Africa. Christianity or Catholicism in Europe, and now they got two factions that are at odds and warring with each other mm-hmm. uh, from that time forward, and they're still going on today. And so the, the thing that's important is that now the borders of these two um, governments' thought processes mm-hmm. are right up against each other, and it creates a tension yes. that is going to ultimately have uh, major implications for the Crusades themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe you can set the stage for Europe now. Uh, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about uh, the Dark Ages, um, and particularly this time frame. What was religious thought like? Uh, what was society like? Um, what were the things that were going on that are, are critical for our understanding as we move forward? Well, society by that point in time was what they called the feudal system, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. And the feudal system is completely totalitarian in its concept. Now, that is a characteristic of Catholicism. It's also a characteristic of Islam, mm-hmm. that you've got an elite at the top that control everything, and the the serfs and the peasants are under the domination of the elites, mm-hmm. and there's no freedom of movement between them. Basically, the feudal system, you have the landlord, which is the lord who owns the land, um, and in the Western side or the Christian side, if you will, that would be the Catholic Church. And then you have the knights or the vassals who controlled, they, they were the military protectors mm-hmm. hired by the Catholic Church to protect certain areas of land. And then 95% of the population were the serfs or the pe- peasants. Right. Right. And they are there for the benefit and the glory of the elites and the establishment. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Everyone is basically a ward of the state, and the state becomes the god. Uh, And when you bring that to Islam, the Islamic religion is the master, the god. When you bring it to Catholicism, the Catholic Church is the master, the god, the authority, and the um, the people themselves are the wards of the state, and they're the servants of the state. They exist for the purpose of the right. state. So you can take that same mindset, look at Catholicism, communism, socialism, fascism, what all these isms yeah. that are out mm-hmm. there, and they have a very similar basic structure to them. Right. There's an elite class at the top. There's the peasants and the servants here, and there's nothing hardly in between them right. of what we know in our society. And so the counter to that is obviously the role of the papal authority. Yes. So, you know, that is plays such a huge role in terms of the way that people think from day to day and, and um, superstition, the superstition mm-hmm. of the church in particular. Maybe you can briefly go over uh, for us, what did these superstitions look like and, and what was the status of the Catholic church at this time? Well, so there's a ton of superstitions in their... Um, theology, but I think the the superstition that is most 
applicable to where we go with the Crusades mm-hmm. are the relics yes. of that particular point in time, and they still are even to this day. I don't know if you recall a couple, three years ago, the fire that was in the church in in Paris, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, one of the cathedrals yeah, in Paris no- called Notre Dame. Notre Dame, yeah. and it was a massive problem and everything. They were happy that they had gone in and um, rescued the actual crown of thorns Mm, that was one of the concerns. That was one of the concerns yeah. because the actual crown of thorns of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is was in that building, and they were able able to to rescue it out of there and save wow. that crown of thorns. We're so thankful. Oh for that. yes, those now, hero, those heroes of the faith. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I I don't know if you saw the smirk on my face or yeah, not. Yeah. Right. But I'm not sure that that really no, is I, the I, actual yeah. crown of thorns. Yes. It's, but but. But that, that's a that's a current thing that we can identify with. Mm-hmm. But to expand on that a little bit, the number of relics that the Catholic Church claimed to own during that particular time was just insanely legion. So much, so many different things that they had that were supposedly relics of of of, of the Lord and mm. during that particular time. And this is all pagan superstition. The worship of objects was forbidden by the Old Testament law, right. and yet now we have objects that are being used as, as mm-hmm. aids to worship or symbols of worship. Mm-hmm. During this time, just some of the stuff that they owned was just nuts. Um, supposedly, they had 8,000 of Jesus's baby teeth. That's quite a collection. Now, come on, folks. <laughs> Who can't... Fi- Eight yeah. thousand, yeah. yeah, three heads of John the Baptist. Three heads of John the Baptist. Yeah, Which one, two of them. You know? Yeah, they, they supposedly. Uh, I don't know if this story is actually true or not, but I suspect that it is. That two people in the same village had the head of John the Baptist, and one mm. of them was larger than the other one. And the explanation was that the smaller one was when John the Baptist was a child. No. Yeah, I, I have a hard time believing that anyone with their own head. Would come up with something like that. Yeah, and and people and people actually believe yeah. this stuff. Yeah, um, they had the towel from the foot washing of Jesus in John chapter thirteen. Mm-hmm. A thousand years after Christ, how often do you replace your towels at home? I mean, our towels are pretty crusty. We've gotten about ten years max out of a towel. Yeah, about ten years max, all you get. <laughs> and now we've got a towel that's been preserved for a sure. thousand years. Sure. Okay. They had a a tear from the Christ, from Christ on the cross, captured mm. in a vial someplace. Really? Yeah. How did you identify that? Uh, they had a vial of Mary's breast milk. Hmm. In one thousand A.D., a wow. thousand years after the fact. How did you identify that? How did it get sure, preserved? Sure, there's for nothing a scientific years? about it, uh, one bit. It, this is literally just marketing and total and, pagan superstition. Yeah. What was happening is that the okay now in 638, Islam conquered Jerusalem and Palestine. In about 1,000 or for the next 400 years or so, Christians. And I use the term loosely, um, are making pilgrimage over to the Holy Land to get holy because now I'm at the Holy I've been at the place. I, I was there where Jesus was. And every time they do, they find another nail of the cross. There's how mm-hmm. many nails of the cross out there? There are only you know, three. Uh, but how many were there? Uh, pieces of the cross. There was enough pieces of the cross to build a town. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> everything they find 
Oh, was another relic of Jesus, 8,000 of his baby teeth, and God only knows what else they're finding. The list is just incredible. Every time one of these pilgrims goes to the land, they find another thing, they steal it, and claim that this is a relic of the church. And right. after a while, it's like, you know, enough is enough of this. Mm-hmm. So it was we, that superstition that was driving a lot of this. So we've got, you know, normal people, right? Yeah. Normal Europeans who are Catholic, mm-hmm. um, maybe particularly the more devoted believers, mm-hmm. um, saying to themselves, "Hey, if if I want to be spiritual, right. if I want to ensure uh, the favor of God on mm-hmm. my life." Um, then I should take one of these pilgrimages. It'll, yes. it'll, it, what it'll do is it'll solidify um, my standing before the Lord. And, and so they start walking mm-hmm. and, uh, and they travel the long distance. It's common that people don't make it all the way. Exactly. Um, but the justification in making such a trip is that you get to come back with a relic piece or, or something that you get to brag, mm-hmm. that you get to come to before the bishop and say, look what I found for the church. Yes, and you gain eternal life yourself yeah. along with some money right. for gaining this particular relic. Mm-hmm. And it's a works-based type of thing. Yeah, yeah. So the, the pilgrimage is actually a very critical part yes. of our story here. Yeah. Um, because we see that the pilgrimages become more and more difficult to make because the lands are occupied by these Turks. Right. And uh, in time, there is maybe even some persecution. People are coming back mm-hmm. to Europe, uh, to France, uh, to Germany, and they're describing the difficulties that they ran into with the, with the Turks. And eventually, pilgrimages were essentially shut down right. at all. People right. weren't allowed to make that travel to the Holy Land. Right. So... Um, what happened there, and why is that so significant, and how is that really a catalyst for a response in Europe? But the, So then this incites the Christians, again, term we use loosely, incites the Catholics to um, jihad, if you will, mm-hmm. to war against Islam because they're controlling this area that is that has pagan superstition behind it in the Catholic mm-hmm. mindset, because if I go to this particular area and walk on the ground that Jesus walked on and find another piece of the cross or another one of Jesus' baby teeth, then I can gain eternal life. That's a very strong motivation for somebody to yeah. gain eternal life through the things that they acquire that right. way. Uh, and if they're shut down and they're not able to do that any longer, <clears throat> then they're going to they're going to react to that. Sure. Okay. Um, so the Catholic Church reacts to that. Now, there's a principle of history that I teach that is very foundational to understanding a lot of these things, and it's what I call triangulation, okay. three different aspects that, that Satan uses to put people within a triangle, get them in a box, them into a corner so that he control them. And Satan uses religion, politics, and the military together, those mm-hmm. three things, to triangulate somebody into a corner and box them in where he can dominate and control their life. Okay. These people are dominated, they're controlled, they have been told from for generations that this is the only true church. They've, they're ignorant of the Bible because the Catholic Church forbids them to read it. Um, and 
all they know is what they've been told by the elites at the top, right. and they're living their life in this bondage and of superstition and being told those things because the religion is the mindset. It's the thought process mm -hmm. behind. When I say religion, I'm not just talking about Islam or Catholicism or Mormonism or whatever it is. I'm talking about a thought process that permeates through an entire yeah. group of people, yeah. and that's what happened to is in Islam. That's what happens in Catholicism. Islam believes that this is the mindset you you are told what you will believe. Catholics are told what they will believe by their their leaders. Then laws get passed. There's the second leg of the triangle: mm -hmm. religion, politics, military. Right. Once the religion or the thought process takes over a group of people, then you start passing laws, and it becomes against the law to disagree with the religion. Mm -hmm. What do we see in Islam today? Right. Okay. It's against the law. If you you're an enemy of the state, if you don't believe what they believe. Right. Now that I have the law on my side, if you violate the law, here comes the military or the police or the sword or whatever it is to execute the law and execute the people who disagree with the law. Mm -hmm. So now you've got these people boxed into these triangles. There's two of them at work now. There is Islam, there's Catholicism. Yeah. And within those triangles, people are deluded, con deceived, and told what they're allowed to believe. It's enforced by the law, and if you violate the law, we're going to put you in jail or kill you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's in massive control. Now, I've, now Satan's got two of them. And what happens through, to, to put it in, in, in a nutshell where you can— back up from it, get the big picture. What happens in that is that these two triangles now start waging war against each other. Mm -hmm. And the evil genius behind that is I've got them under my mind control. I've got the laws passed. Now, if I can get these people fighting with each other, they start killing each other off before anybody can get the truth to them. Yeah. And what it, what it does is it further establishes the depth of their systematic thinking. Yes. So you've got one system of thought here with a with a three-part structure. You have one mm -hmm. system of thought here with a three-part structure. Right. If they have someone to war with, then they're that much more justified in their particular system. Exactly. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. it's pretty wild. It's it's evil genius. Notice the evil. Yeah, right. Okay. So then that brings us to, you know, you said the the very first part was the religious part, right? Yes. And in this case we have a figure uh, Urban II, mm -hmm. who is really the mouthpiece for the right. beginning of the Crusades. Can you tell us about Urban II, who he was, and what it was that he was preaching? What was his message? To, to back up a little bit, a guy by the name of Peter the Hermit, mm -hmm. who went to... Um, He's French, correct? He's a, yeah. yeah. And he went to Palestine on one of his pilgrimages. Mm -hmm. He was a faithful member of the church, and he got shut down. He got refused because of all of the abuse that was taking place of the Catholics going in and stealing everything they could get their mm -hmm. hands on, claiming it was a relic. And so when he got shut down, he came back and reported to Urban that, hey, they're shutting down these pilgrimages, and that incited him to to wage the, the conflict. And mm -hmm. so at the Council of Claremont, 1095, Pope Urban gets up and, and puts out this great speech. You can read about it in the church history books if you want. And basically the theme of the speech was these uh, people are controlling the place where Jesus it, um, uh, walked, and we need to go take it from them. 
um, in a military campaign. It's the will of God. God wills it. God wills yeah. it. And it was a man, this mantra chant. Yeah, they, they started chanting it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mind control. Yeah. It's God's will to do so. And so he instigated and incited the mobs and the rioters to take up arms, to go to Palestine and overthrow the Muslims that were there and and take the land in a military uh, complex, uh, uh, campaign to mm-hmm. do so. And that's really the kickoff of what we know as the actual Crusades was his speech in 1095. He promised indulgences to those who would do so. And again, to simplify what that is, I'm promising you eternal life if you will go fight for the church right. to take over this thing. Um, one of the uh, historians of the Crusades actually said this, that God invented the Crusades for the purpose of allowing the laity to atone for their sins and merit salvation. Now, they're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. No. Because we don't atone for our own sins. Jesus did that on the cross of Calvary for us. We don't merit salvation, for by grace are you saved through faith in that, not of yourselves. It's a Mm -hmm. gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And God, I think he's got his gods mixed up, because there's the God of this world also with a small g, and it was that God who instigated the the Crusades to get people riled up in this militaristic fervor to Mm -hmm. do so. So in promising the indulgences, he's promising them eternal life. If you go and fight for this, uh, you'll go to heaven because you fought for the church, and it got extended to family members. Do we see that same principle in Islam? Mm -hmm. If you go give your life in battle, you go blow yourself up. Right. I mean, this this issue is still in our world today. I mean, just last week, a guy goes into the— Kabul airport yeah. in Afghanistan, blows himself up in front of a bunch of people and takes them out with him. He was promised eternal life for doing that. Mm-hmm. Where did that stuff come from? Yeah. It's just as Catholic as Islam. Right. And and to that point, you know, what you're asking, what you're talking about, it makes me think of two things. We've obviously had this com- conversation about mm-hmm. the kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven over right. and over again yeah. in these episodes where we're delineating you know, our Bible in particular mm-hmm. that we read, the King James, delineates between the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, and right. it allows us to have an insight and perspective into to the difference between the heavenly kingdom that God will one day set up during the millennial reign. Jesus Christ will a- actually rule and reign from the earth. And so when the Bible is making reference to the kingdom of heaven, it is a specific thing in a future tense yes. that he will establish himself. Right. Um, versus kingdom of God, which is a, a spiritual kingdom where God is drawing mankind through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ right. to himself in the spirit of mm-hmm. God. Right. So the Catholics obviously don't make that delineation. Exactly. Right? Uh, and we've, we've addressed that before. And obviously a similar perspective exists, and it creates this in, in, in Islam, and in both factions it creates this fervor. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a particular type of person that gets taken advantage of in this way. And I want to talk about the crusader. Um, right. What kind of person says, yeah, I'll leave my family. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll leave my work and, and the things that I've given my life to, and I'll risk everything. Because the idea is that this person's not going to come back home. Right. If they leave, there's a good chance they're not going to return home. Most of them never did. Right. 
What kind of person is is ready to do that? It's somebody who is so captured in the fervor of the moment mm-hmm. and the idea of attaining eternal life through what I do in sacrificing for my religion mm-hmm. that is uh, uh, totally apart from what our Bible tells us. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, we give our lives to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to give our lives for the service of, of, of an institution to go over and murder people in the name of our God is never, right. ever um, justifiable in anything that is that is biblical at all. There's mm-hmm. nothing in our faith in the risen Savior, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, that would ever prompt us to think about murdering somebody else in the name of our God, let alone carry it out. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even think of it. Right. Okay. Um, we try to convince people based upon the power of the persuasion of the Word, yeah. uh, the Word of God and our words through the Word of God, that Jesus is the only solution, the only way, the only answer of life. Um, but it's their decision to make. Mm-hmm. And if they don't want to make that decision, it's not my place to take a sword out or a gun out and, and end their life because they're not making that yeah, decision. Right. But that mindset captured the population. It captured, obviously, the institutions, and it gets filtered down. And through that, is that, that jihadist, jihadist fervor yeah. that is as Catholic as it is Islam. Mm-hmm. And and I think the point that I, I was hoping maybe you'd hit on, too, was this idea that that because of serfdom, mm-hmm. what we're talking about is that the majority of the populace was poor, desperate, and yes. easily exploited, which is true even today of, of those who commit these egregious terrorist acts and they put their lives at risk. The story behind these characters is that they were poor, desperate, and easy to exploit. What do I have to lose? Right, exactly. Okay, what do I have now? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what do I have to lose? Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a hope that yeah. you know this will produce fame and fortune and and respect and and it doesn't and it doesn't and so hundreds of thousands of people were incited to this uh, at the time of the initial crusades and then throughout the rest of them for the next two hundred years left home walk no preparation they were never organized into a military force and trained to be military people. Uh, They just left home under fervor and walked across Europe. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were not loaded into tanks and C-130s and moved to the battlefield. They walked. Yeah. And blisters on their feet, starving to death to try to conquer this land for Holy Mother Church while Holy Mother Church is sitting back there in, in all of its splendor and glory. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We want to hit pause right here. My name is Dallas Slaughterdale III, man. I just want to give you guys a little bit of background of my story. 2016, I graduated from Moody. And Pastor Trider was like, hey, we're about to start another semester in, in LFBI, man. Why don't you hop on it? So I did, man. I learned more in those three classes than I did in two years enrolled in Moody. LFBI is what I was looking for back in 2014 when I enrolled in Moody. It has increased uh, my zeal for the Word of God and for the God of the Word. I really encourage anybody who is out there that is that is seeking God. This is the place where your excitement for the Word of God and again for the God of the Word will increase. So hopefully I'll be seeing you guys soon.
Take care. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org slash support. Yeah, it's it's a it's a sad um, thought to see these Very. these these men take off with all kinds of hope, but you know all they have to their name is a red cross patch sewn onto their you know yep. sparse military uniform, and so you know Walter the Penniless is kind of the first figure that we see, right. and he takes a group again of of you know tw- well, approximately twenty thousand yeah people with him on this first surge right uh towards the holy land um these men i don't know what kind of weapons they're carrying what what, you know is it just nothing tools tools from their yeah they're gonna they're gonna get there and they're gonna hope that a lot of it for example in one of the in the in the first crusades the group that actually finally got there walked around the city hoping that the walls would fall down like Jericho. Mm. So they didn't have armaments or tool. They didn't have them at the time. Yeah. And even if they had them, they weren't going to carry them with them. They're just going to go and they're going to fight. Mm. What are we going to fight with? Well, I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. It's just complete blindness and total ignorance. And wow. like you said, Walter... I, I get a kick out of these guys. Walter the Penniless is like, hey, man, get a job. I mean, you know. <laughs> but Walter the Penniless gets 20,000 people together to march over to the promised land. They were supposed to meet in in Constantinople. Only 7,000 of them made it to Constantinople. Wow. So 13,000 either died or defected along the way. And the 7,000 that made it to Constantinople were surrounded and, and, and massacred. Hmm didn't even make it to the promised land right and which was common especially in this first surge it took several it took several surges in this first crusade i suppose so so you have walter the penniless he 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 doesn't fulfill um things don't go well for him and then actually the the character that you mentioned earlier peter the hermit Mm -hmm. gathers forty thousand, right and does the same now how did that go how did that go for him similar situation right um, he takes forty thousand. they get to constantinople a few of them survived became a little a few of the the people who who ended up actually in getting to the promised land in the first crusade and overcoming it mm-hmm. uh, but most of them died as well peter the hermit went back to the pope at that time and said well you know the people failed and it was their fault uh, there was sin in the camp. He blamed Achan like Joshua yeah, yeah. Um, in the time of Joshua and said, you know, Moses led the children of Israel out of the wilderness, but they all died because it was their fault. Mm-hmm. So typical situation of, you know, it, it certainly couldn't blame be Blame shifting. My, it, blame shift. Yeah, couldn't, certainly couldn't be my fault. It has mm-hmm. to be somebody else's. And so they blamed the, the people for it, and they go, they die. Yeah. Uh, another wave comes across, and some of them got there, and some of them didn't. And by the time the first crusade was actually congealed and organized, it started in 1095 uh, with the speech at the Council of Claremont. But it didn't. The Jerusalem was not overtaken until 1099, four years later. Right. Uh, by the time the first wave actually started militarily um, um, functioning was at least a year, year and a half mm. after that speech, 300,000 men in Europe left home, left family, left wife and children behind wow. to walk, to die 
300,000 of them died before they even left Constantinople. Which in, in Europe at that time, 300,000 is way more than it is even today. Exactly. That's an incredible amount of people. A huge percentage. And it wasn't all, you know, they, they, a lot of these men left with lots of hope and glimmer in their eyes, but there was a large faction, especially what happened in the Rhineland Massacre, yeah. if you don't mind touching on this, because something happens in the perspective. There's a shift in the perspective. Some, there's a desperation that takes place and there's these perpetrations in Germany that start happening, Christian against Jew. Yes. Maybe you can walk through that and explain to us what horrendous things were happening before they even got into battle. Yeah, so you leave home with nothing. Mm -hmm. You've got no money. You've got no bank account. You've got no credit card. You got, obviously, none of that exists at the time. But you've got, you're walking on foot. You're going to get physically spent, exhausted, You've got no quick trips and pizza huts along right. the way. Um, you're starving to death. And <clears throat> this fervor takes you only so far when that happens. And mm -hmm. at some point in time, your things kick in and you go, I'm going to do something to survive. So they get to uh, Germany and a lot of these groups would get there and they'd say, well, we've got to find resources for this. And they would target Jewish communities Um as many as 20,000 Jews died in attacks by these crusaders. This is before they get to Constantinople, before they get to Jerusalem. They're just killing people indiscriminately to take their goods so that they can survive yeah. themselves. Yeah. Again, it's part of the evil genius. Just rally up the people and stir them up based on fervor and, and blind ignorance and just get them scattered around killing each other. It, the thing that amazes me, amazes me about that story, and and really a lot of the uh, the atrocious acts, particularly against the Jewish people, mm -hmm. is that you know obviously their justification was well these were the people this is what they proclaimed these the Jews were the people that killed Christ right, and so that was their justification, and yet they are marching in a crusade that is Davidic, yeah. in nature. Uh huh. Right, they're they're employing Jewish thought, kingdom of heaven thought, yes, in order to really justify the entire campaign itself, and so it's this the contradiction is vulgar, it, and it is. and then and then I mean these are men, women, and children that mm -hmm. were killed in these massacres. Pretty yeah. amazing. It is. It's amazing. But again, the contradiction in the mind. If you're trying to make sense out of the out of what Satan mm -hmm. does in the minds of people like this, then you're not really looking at things. You, right. you can't make sense can't. out of this. You can't. you can't look at it as a normal human being and go, well, this doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense because it's not supposed to. Right, yeah. So that leads us to um, Godfrey of Bouillon. Yes. Um, who has the first, I guess you would call it, successful... Sort of successful. Quasi-successful surge in the First Crusade. Right. So um, he leaves. It was a large. It was a pretty large number he had with him. Basically, there's kind of. If you want to uh, um, simplify it, you have a wave of people. The pl the battle plan was to leave all through Europe and to convene in Constantinople. Okay, which is modern day Istanbul, Turkey. Um, we're going to convene there, and when we get together there, then we'll make, get our next step of the game plan to try to make it down to Jerusalem. 300,000 people died 
300,000 men died even getting to Constantinople, but mm. 300,000 made it. Okay. So roughly through that time, and it's a year to two years, that it takes about a little more than half a million people, um, men, leaving behind a half a million wives and a million children or man. more. Man. Okay. Now what are these wives and children going to do? They're going to fend for them. Destitute. It's just a horrible situation. Mm. This, to me... The Crusades are the most horrible, disgusting, filthy depravity of religion that has ever happened in the history of our world, mm -hmm. and it's still going on today. Yeah. So anyway, you get mm. half a million or more people, men, leaving home to go fight this fervor campaign. Um, along the way, reality starts setting in, and they're massacring people to try to survive. Half of them die before they get to Constantinople, and, but half of them made it. Yeah. So about 300,000 people have made it to okay. Constantinople. This is where Godfrey comes in. Godfrey Bullion, who I like to joke is the inventor of soup. But <laughs> he comes in and marshals that crowd of people together, and they start the campaign from Constantinople to make it. And if you're familiar with the area or the map in your mind, they're going to make it now through Asia Minor and then make that turn down the Mediterranean the coast. coast and come down through Antioch and Iconium, Damascus and that yeah. area mm -hmm. toward the north into Jerusalem. It takes them another two or three years to do that. So by 1099, four years after Urban's speech, 20,000 people, 20,000 men made it to the outskirts of Jerusalem. So you had 600,000 to start with. Now you're down to 20,000. Mm. But along the way, they, they took major positions that they were after. They took Antioch. Mm -hmm. yep. And then these were supposed to lead to success in Jerusalem. Supposed to. Yeah. and The, uh, the battle at Antioch is kind of important. That took about a year to take place to, to capture Antioch. And... Obviously, they're dying like crazy, and the conditions are just absolutely in, in, intolerable, inhumane conditions mm -hmm. that pe these people are living on, yeah. on this mind fervor, mindless fervor, uh, whipped up by, this, by a false spirit to drive them to murder people in the name of their God. And they get there, they're, all hope is lost, they're about to ready to give up, um, and all of a sudden... Back to the relics. Yeah, this is this, this is such an interesting part of the story. Somebody finds what they call the lance of Longinus, which is supposedly the spear that was used at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. To pierce his side. The pierced his the side. The water and the blood okay. came out. And, yes. Yeah. Okay. This was in, what, 1099 or whatever? Uh, 1099, I believe. A thousand sixty years plus... After the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, somebody finds a spear, yeah, unrusted, and identifies intact. it as the spear that was used a thousand years later. Mm -hmm. Identify it as the spear that was used in the side of Jesus Christ. How did they identify it that way? How many thousands and thousands of spears were there? How did they know that particular one? was the one that was used at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I guess they ran DNA testing on his blood. Yeah. Yeah. They they must have. They, you know, yeah. the forensics were 
much better than I imagine they were. It must have been. <laughs> See, this is the... No, it's ridiculous. This is the ridiculous yeah. superstition, pagan insanity that drove people's minds. And when they found that, it's like, it's we the, found the spear that... And, and it's that, the sign it they just, needed. Yeah, it was the signing, and it upped to the level of the fervor again to the, the point where they rush. finally were able to overcome Antioch and, and drive and, the Muslims out of there. Right. And so so the siege of Jerusalem itself was, first of all, I don't think um, those who occupied Jerusalem were expecting the crusaders to make it there. Right. Um, they weren't outfitted. No. And prepared for for the battle. They were not outfitted. They were outfitted worse than a bunch of eight year old Boy Scouts. Yeah, right. But nonetheless, um, you know, it was Jerusalem was overtaken. Yeah, and and so now we have the Crusaders occupying the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. um, so that really that ends the First Crusade. We we see something like just under six hundred thousand people die. Right. Uh, that's that's on the Catholic side. That's not the right, Muslim side. Right, right. We we still are not really sure the reasoning uh, for all of it. It seems obviously uh, like an absurd proposition. Mm -hmm. It was demonic in nature. Yeah. Just an, in, an incredible story. So what do we? What are the takeaways in terms of the outcomes from the First Crusade itself? What what is it that we should know about the First Crusade, and what? Tell us about how it sets us up for future conversations about the other crusades as well. The thing that we look at to try to draw this to where we are today, because I made the, the comment earlier that we're still fighting the crusades today, mm -hmm. and I think we all have a little bit of an understanding of that, but maybe not as much as we, we really should. Satan always plays the long game. Mm -hmm. God plays a longer one. Um. But he's not impatient. He know he he looks at the bigger picture sometimes more than he does the infinite the, the the minute details. We look we tend to look sometimes at the minute details. So here we are, a thousand years later, and this fervor of Islam versus Christianity is ratcheted up all the time, constantly, mm -hmm. and the taking the embassy in 1979 in Iran is part of the Crusades. Mm. Um, just look at what has taken place just this past week or month in Afghanistan. We were over there for 20 years. And in that 20 years, we try to accomplish as many things as we possibly can. I'm sure made tens of thousands of mistakes in, along the way, mm -hmm. uh, plan to get out of there, whatever you want to argue the, the details of it. But this whole thing just collapsed that fast yeah. and we decide to pull out and here comes the Taliban and whoosh, just who couldn't see that coming it looks just like one of these sieges that we talked about like it's an, an incredible the idea that within a 24-hour period you can have a, see a change in power that quick and it's these lands are so desirous in terms of occupation there's clearly a spiritual element mm -hmm. to to what we're talking about yeah, so it's the same fervor, mm -hmm. the same mindset of religion, politics, and military. You will think the way that I think, and you will believe what I believe. And if you don't, then I will pass a law that says that you are against, you are an enemy of the state, which then gives me the power to kill you in 
in the process of doing so. Mm. And that mindset is predominant in Catholicism, it's predominant in Islam, and they fight against each other, and they've been fighting against each other ever since then, and this first crusade was so incredibly savage and bloody and disgusting and filthy and everything you want to call it, um, glorified by the church as this military campaign to take over the promised land, but Islam has never forgotten it, and they'll say it that way even to, even uh -huh. to this day. Yeah. Islam has never forgotten it uh, because it was unjustifiable in what they had done mm -hmm. um, and went in there and just murdered and savaged the whole place. And, and, and now we repeat that over and over and over. So what we see in Afghanistan today, what we saw in 1979 with the Iranian hostage crisis, what we saw in 91 with Saddam Hussein going into Kuwait and then firing scuds over at Israel, all of those things is Crusade number 1200, Crusade number 1355, Crusade number yeah, 2195. Yeah. I mean, it goes on and on and right. on and on. It will not stop until Jesus returns. Mm -hmm. And the irony of this particular story is that by the time the word got back to Europe, mm -hmm. Urban II has already passed away. Yes. And he never gets to hear, you never know, he never gets, gets to hear, to hear his news. victory speech, yes. if you will. No. Uh, the, it was July 15th of 1099, to be exact on the date, that um, the Crusaders finally made it into Jerusalem and conducted this massive, bloodthirsty, savage murder of everybody that was there they could get their hands on. Mm -hmm. um, and two weeks after that, Urban died. Wow. And with... He didn't have CNN at the time to report it back right, to him, yeah. so he never got the news. Well, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, didn't, if he, he, had, didn't deserve, he didn't deserve the opportunity exactly. to Exactly, and if that. he had gotten the news, what he would have probably done is moved to Jerusalem and taken over. Set up the throne. Set up the throne yeah. there. And... Uh, I will ascend and I will be like the Most High. I will put it, sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And when you look at Psalm 48, it describes Jerusalem as beautiful for situation in the sides of the north. Mm -hmm. That's the city of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the place in which he will reign from. And the enemy wants to take that particular place. Yeah, the Antichrist has always been yes, after that he's position. He's always been after that position and that spot. And that was another one of the spirits driving this that mm -hmm. caused him to, to to have the fervor that he did. Had he received the news, he probably likely would have gone over there and tried to proclaim himself God of the earth. And God said, no. We're not ready for that part of the plan yet. Right. <laughs> wow. Well, Greg, um, so we've just started. We're going to do another episode yeah. okay. um, where we talk about the, re the remainder of the Crusades. Right. So okay. stay tuned for that, right? Yep. And uh, so thank you so much for this right. this primer for, for the next episodes. And we want to thank you as well uh, for joining us for another episode of The Postscript. And uh, I know that there's a lot of people who are really interested in these church history episodes. And so I want to remind you that if you go over to YouTube and you visit our uh, channel, The Postscript channel, you'll find a playlist de dedicated to just the, the church history episodes. So you can listen to them back to back to back and everything will be a little bit more seamless for you. Uh, if you're listening on podcast platform, please uh, like and share and write reviews for these episodes. Uh, that way we're, we're moving up and we have more opportunity to be exposed to, to other people. Um, also, we want to really recommend that uh, if you're interested in this, 
that the church history class comes up uh, at least every other year in our program of study at the Living Faith Bible Institute. And so if this topic interests you and you'd really like to take church history, um, that course is available. And so just keep an eye out on it. Next time it comes through, make sure that you enroll. Uh, last but not least, um, our friend Greg has a book on church history. It's called Church History. Very simple, <laughs> very creative. But but it speaks to uh, principles of how to look at history from the lens of Scripture, which is very important, a very distinct aspect of this book. But then it also takes us through Western history and talks about uh, the church and 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 how it, it has existed and how the gospel of Jesus Christ has made it despite the fact that it's the history is riddled with hypocrites and and enemies and so very powerful book uh, and if if this topic interests you at all uh, we ask that you would go to Amazon and, and pick that book up. But with all that said, we love you. We're grateful for you. We're thankful for you hanging out with us, and we hope to see you again next week for another episode of the Postscript. God bless.